Hey y'all, this is your host Laura. Before beginning today's episode, I wanted to provide you with a content warning. This series will contain information related to racial violence and racially motivated death. It may also include some adult language. Hello and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hello everyone, I have some announcements before we really get started. If you have been with me for the last few episodes, you've heard this before, but bear with me. This is episode 4, Legacy of the Confederacy, part 2 of my series, Hashtag Black Lives Matter. This series focuses on stories surrounding structural racism and civil rights in Kansas City. I'll be using the terms black and white in these episodes because these stories focus on the structural racism faced by black Americans. This does not mean black folks are the only ones to experience racism. While we're on the subject, allow me to define structural slash institutional slash systematic racism. Pretty much what it sounds like, it's racism that is so deeply embedded within our everyday lives and society that white Americans don't know that it's there. And that is white privilege. I knew when I started thinking about this podcast uh, back in early 2019 that I would want to cover stories like these. I just didn't realize that it would happen so early in the history of the podcast. But our current socio-political climate definitely gave me the incentive to tell this story at this time. So, to be clear, I'm not being ironic. I do believe that black lives also matter, and I support the Black Lives Matter movement, but I am not affiliated with any official or unofficial Black Lives Matter organizations. My goal for this series is to uplift black voices in Kansas City, and to hopefully hope my white listeners to come to a deeper understanding of the black experience within our city and gain empathy for them. It's only once we recognize the truths of these stories and the impact that they still have on us today that we can become better people in a better city, better society. Lastly, for this series only, any interviews related to this topic will be available to everyone, not just my patrons. I don't have any interviews currently scheduled, but If you were an activist in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, and you would like to tell your story, I would love to host you. Please get in contact with me. My email is homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can message me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Or you can find my email through my website, which is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. I do have one episode that I will make available to everyone. Beginning November 1st, and then ending December 31st of 2020, the interview with Dr. Karma Williams from the Black Archives of Mid-America that I did back in February of this year will be made available. It will not be available in 2021, so please listen to it while it is available. Today's episode is going to examine the legacy of the Confederate flag and Confederate monuments in America and in Kansas City. 
I'll start with the creation of the Confederate flag and monuments across the nation before zeroing in on examples specific to Kansas City. For those of you who support the Confederate flag and think the removal and or destruction of Confederate monuments is, quote, erasing history, this segment's probably going to piss you off. Bye, Felicia. Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. So, growing up, I used to hear a lot of people argue that the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery, but over states' rights. I don't really hear that argument anymore, but, you know, I was thinking over it, and I was like, yeah, it was the state's rights, the right to own other humans as slaves. Quote, no bill of attender, ex post facto law, or law denying or impairing the right of property in Negro slaves shall be passed, end quote. That's directly from the Constitution of the Confederacy. So, instead of hearing states' rights, I hear a lot of people say the flag is heritage or a cultural symbol or just outright denial that it's racist in any way. And so, my question to you is, sure, it's your heritage, but heritage of what? And the simple answer is white supremacy and racism. The Confederate battle flag was created by the leaders of the Confederate States of America, these states were once a part of the Union, and after the Civil War, they rejoined the Union. But after they seceded, they became their own nation. They had a president, Jefferson Davis. They had a VP, Alexander Hamilton Stevenson's. They had cabinet members. They wrote their own constitution, which I've already quoted from, and I'll have a link to that on the website. They had their own army. They even printed their own damn money. I'll try to find an image of that um, on Pinterest or, or um, somewhere online and post it to website and Pinterest. And more than the others, printing your own money is a huge sign of sovereignty. So, yeah, they were a separate sovereign nation. They weren't a successful one, obviously, and thank God. But they were no longer members of the U.S. So to say that... The Confederate flag is an, maybe not the, but an American flag is not true. I also have to wonder why people argue that those who fought on the side of the Confederacy are still a, an American veteran and that they should receive the same honors as an American veteran. You know, average Joe Farmer trying to feed his family that gets conscripted, he may or may not have believed in and supported the causes of the Confederacy. But the Confederate leaders, by their own words and deeds, were racist, white supremacist, and killers. So why is it okay to have a symbol of their beliefs up everywhere, as though it was something good that we should be proud of? The history and theory of memory and memorization is fascinating and immense. I can't get into such a deep subject today. Maybe someday. But on the surface, memorialization is pretty simple to understand, right? Something really bad happened, like the attack on the World Trade Centers, or the shooting at Sandy Hook, and we want to honor these victims. Or something really good happened, like we won the battle at Waterloo, and we want to celebrate this win. Or even something like, this person was utterly fantastic, and they created this marvelous thing, and we want to honor them. Right? Okay, so by this logic, a statue of a Confederate soldier or leader is either something really good or really bad. 
And it doesn't make sense to honor someone who did really bad things like kill people or own other humans as slaves. So a Confederate monument must be something that's really good. Does everybody follow this logic? Well, that would be how you say fake news. Because owning slaves, owning humans, killing them, subjugating them, everything that Confederacy stands for is really bad. Therefore, we shouldn't honor it because it's not good. So, if you don't know the truth behind these symbols, I'm going to educate y'all. The vast majority of these statues were not erected immediately following the end of the Civil War to mark deaths and sacrifices of soldiers to the Great South, as the mythos says. No, the majority of them were erected between 1880 and the 1920s, a.k.m. Jim Crow era. Just a reminder, the Jim Crow era, as we call it, was when laws were enacted specifically to subjugate black Americans in the wake of the elimination of institutionalized slavery in America. Quote, all of those monuments were there to teach values to people. Um, end quote. Said history professor at UNC. <clears throat> quote, Elliot says, that's why they put them in the city squares. That's why they put them in front of state buildings, end quote. Many earlier memorials had instead been placed in cemeteries. Okay, so those ones are to honor the dead. But the values of these monuments, according to Mark Elliott, is, quote, the glorification of the cause of the Civil War, end quote. And then... While the creation of new statues and monuments honoring Confederacy tapers off after the 1920s doesn't cease, just slows down, there was an uptick in the prevalence of Confederate battle flags in public spaces. So in response to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, the flag gained a new popularity and a few of the southern states even redesigned their state flags to include the battle flag. Why, you ask? Why during an era... Two eras, in fact, in which black Americans are gaining new freedoms and fighting for access to civic rights that they should already have, are symbols of the Confederacy so widespread and honored among segments of the white population? Hmm. I don't know. Think about it. Conclusion. Quote, The majority of the memorials seem to have been built with the intention not to honor fallen soldiers, but specifically to further ideals of white supremacy. End quote. As Brian Palmer and Seth Fred Wessler, co-authors of an article for the Smithsonian Magazine, and a link to which I will put in the website, as they put it, quote, Far from simply being markers of historic events and people, as proponents argue, these memorials were created and funded by Jim Crow governments to pay homage to slave-owning society, end quote. Again, why else are you going to put these things in such prominent public places? Why are there Confederate monuments in Union states up in the north, where there was, obviously, no Confederate government? Or out west in Montana, which wasn't even a part of America at the time? Why are statues to Confederates erected as recently as 2007? Yeah, it's called Iowa's Confederate General, and it was erected in 2007 in Benton Sport, Iowa, by the Sons of Confederacy Veterans, the Military Order of the Stars and Bars, and the Dowd Stone Incorporated. Once more for those in the back, the answer is white supremacism and racism.
Today, the battle flag is a favorite among multiple white supremacist hate groups, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, the neo-Confederacy, the Nationalist Socialist Movement, and many, many others. I've heard Confederate symbols, especially the battle flag, compared to the Nazis um, constantly, and 100% an accurate comparison. You know, the swastika and other Nazi symbols are and have been since the, um, since the end of World War II illegal in Germany, and I don't understand why it's not the same here in America. It really should be. The, the battle flag, at the very least, should be illegal and banned in every state and territory in the United States of America. So, there's this new term being thrown about in our society today. I'm sure you've all heard it. It's called cancel culture. And it's portrayed by many people as a bad thing. But, like, it's not. The idea behind cancel culture is that you did this thing that we as a society agree, and I guess a large part of the issue is that we can't seem to agree, but you did something that we agree is bad, like you beat your wife, or you sexually assaulted someone, or this is just a weird idea I'm going to throw out there, you're a white supremacist. And then we, the rest of society, we call you out on your bullshit and your misdeeds. And you know, if you committed a crime, hopefully you go to jail for it, but Either way, you are ostracized. You're outcast. Like, back when we all learned that what's-his-name dickhead in, like, 2008 was beating his girlfriend, Rihanna. About half of y'all stopped being his fan, and the other half said something like, Oh, I don't support him as a person after this, but I still really like his music. If you still like his music, and you buy his music, then you are supporting him as a person. Okay? Applicable to all areas of misdeeds here. So, while it can be used for anything, I currently see most white folks claiming that the removal of Confederate symbols is cancel culture and erasing history, erasing culture. Listen here, Karen. There are so many books and museums dedicated to the American Civil War, not to mention the whole of the internet. There is 100%, absolutely zero, never ever going to happen chance that history will be erased. And that we won't know why the Civil War was fault. Have you caught on yet that the answer to that would be slavery? The answer to that is slavery. Alright, it's time to focus on specific examples of white supremacy here in Kansas City. There has been a push this last summer to change the name of the J.C. Nichols Fountain and the J.C. Nichols Parkway down by the Country Club Plaza. They were named after Jesse Clyde Nichols, a real estate developer in Kansas City in the 1920s and 30s. He's responsible for the design and creation of the Country Club Plaza, which is a beautiful outdoor shopping center and something I believe that Kansas Cityans are quite proud of. He also developed several other neighborhoods in the Kansas City area. So it makes sense that this is named after him, right? But the man behind the plaza has a very problematic personal history. Dude was a racist and an anti-Semite. If you don't know what that means, anti-Semite means you're a racist against a Jewish person. And he used redlining, which we talked about in episode one, to ensure that neighborhoods he designed, quote, remained racially and socioeconomically homogeneous, end quote. So, like all these other many historical figures whose Achievements and legacy contain elements of exploitation and or ostracism of others through acts of intimidation, hate, 
slavery, societal fears and beliefs, or just business practices. His is a legacy that has been seldom acknowledged, at least publicly. Various groups have pushed for the fountain and the street to be renamed. This summer is not the first effort. It's been going on for at least three years that I know of, but I'm sure it's been much longer than that. But at the end of June, the Parks and Rec Board finally, finally, unanimously voted to remove his name from the fountain. But they also agreed to change the name of the street back to Mill Creek Parkway. The name of the street was changed to Honor Nichols in 1952. I haven't heard yet what they're going to change the name of the fountain to, but I have heard it suggested that it be named after MLK, especially after Paseo was changed to MLK Boulevard, but then changed back to Paseo like less than a year later. It's really fast turnaround there. But that's a separate issue that we're not going to get into now. The fountain itself has an interesting history of its own. I think it'd be cool if the name was changed to something that, um, if not the very first name, is something related to it. Once again, I bet many of you don't know this, or maybe you do. Kansas City used to have a Confederate statue. It was removed from its location in 2017. Missouri, of course, joined the Confederacy in 1861, but as we saw earlier, admittance to the Confederacy has no bearing on the existence or lack of Confederate monuments in that particular state. Anyway, I'm not really sure where the statue ended up once it was removed, but I'll get to that in a minute. It wasn't elaborate. I think I drove past it a lot, actually, while it was still standing and just didn't realize it. It was a nine-foot-tall block of limestone with the Confederate flag and the Union flag carved into it. The Daughters of the Confederacy had it erected in 1934 near the entrance to the Country Club Plaza. Hmm, let me think. That's another connection there. Dot, dot, dot. Um, so I'm thinking it was in or near the Fountain in Mills Creek Park if it's at the entrance to the plaza. But it was removed from that location and placed in Ward Parkway near 55th in 1958. And there it remained until its removal by the Parks and Rec Board. The article I read made it sound like it was only removed because it had been vandalized with graffiti in August of 2017, right after the alt-right, aka Nazi, rally and march in Charlottesville that same month. Apparently, the United Daughters of the Confederacy were concerned for its safety and asked that it be removed and placed in a secure storage space. So, for those who are interested, I found a map of the Southern Poverty Law Center, a nonprofit dedicated to racial justice. It shows every monument, plaque, and statue dedicated to the Confederacy. I will have a link to that on the website, and also uh, links to a few articles that talk about this particular monument. Now, <clears throat> some of y'all aren't going to like hearing this, but even our beloved Kansas City Chiefs have a problematic history containing multiple elements of racism, or cultural appropriation at the very, very least. So if you've listened to my episode on the history of the Chiefs from Series 1, then you know that the team was not named after the Native Americans, but it was named after Mayor Bartle, a.k.a. the Chief, who convinced Lamar Hunt to bring the team to Kansas City. Then again, there is every likelihood that the fact that, or supposed fact that, 
the Chiefs were not named after Native Americans could be false. Could be a flaw or a bias in the sources that say that no, it was not. When in fact it was. And I completely failed to mention such in my original episode. i uh, be honest, I didn't even think about it until I was recording this one. Because every source said no. He was definitely, the team was definitely named after the mayor. Anyway, many of the symbols and, you know, I hate to call them traditions, but I'm not sure what else to call them, um, are cultural appropriations and perversions of Native American traditions. Example, uh, the war, the horse named Warpaint. The guy who used to wear Native American dress and then ride Warpaint. Fans who currently wear Warpaint and headdresses to the game. The Tomahawk Chop. Y'all might not have ever realized it before, or you might have read articles about this debate, because it's been big news in Kansas City for a few years now. Um, and, you know, these things might all be memorable and favorite memories from your childhood, but they are racist in nature. There's no denying it. If you take a piece of someone's sacred culture, example, the headdress, it's my understanding that the Plains Nations used headdresses in ceremonial and religious ceremonies. If that's not the case, I apologize. I don't know a ton about Native American history yet. Um, and if I am incorrect, please let me know. Um, but it's my understanding that it's used for religious purposes. So to use that for something that's, let's be honest, as frivolous as dressing up for a football game, it's incredibly demeaning and insulting and colonial and racist. All right, woo, that was a lot. I feel like I really zoomed through because I'm rather passionate about these topics. Um, so that is the end of today's episode. Thank you for sticking with me through this episode, through this whole series. I hope that you've come out of it with a greater understanding of our city and our nation and the issues we face. Hope you have a greater compassion and empathy for your fellow human beings. If not, I hope this, you know these episodes at least made you stop and think a little bit. Coming up next is nothing. I'll be taking a break for the rest of 2020, but I will see you again in 2021 with some less traumatic history, hopefully. And, you know, actually, this episode, especially the last episode, are sort of leaving a bad taste in my mouth. I don't want to end the year on this note, so I think I'm going to find something to research and give you at least a short episode in December as a as a kind of palate cleanser. Uh, I know that I'm still behind on the website. I am going to get that caught up and I'm going to try to have some more patron episodes for y'all. Um, newest patron episode was an interview with a paranormal investigator. Pretty cool. Probably going to have her back on the show sometime. Check it out. Sources. Griffin's Racism in Kansas City. A Short History. Articles by kcur.org. Additional sources if you want to learn more about institutional racism in America. There is a short video on YouTube that's a good explanation. I'll include that. Read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And read the articles of the 1619 Project by the New York Times. It's a series of well-written and interesting articles about different aspects of contemporary American life. 
that have their roots in slavery and its aftermath, aka structural racism. You do have to create an account to read them, and it will ask you to buy a subscription, but just say no and stick with the free version, then you can access all of those articles. One last thing I want to throw out there because it's so timely. Um, this project has come under fire recently from multiple sources, uh, most prominently from President Trump. In fact, as I was writing this episode, he declared that he would form a commission to promote, quote, patriotic education. He has since signed an executive order to create this commission. I did read this entire document word for word, and wow. Paraphrasing here, but it starts off with something like, We believe that all people, men and women, black and white, are created equal, and we reject discrimination in every form. But we re also reject the notion that white supremacy and racism exist within our great society. And it just goes on in that same vein throughout the document. Like, uh, Yeah, so it just goes on in that same manner throughout the whole thing, saying everyone should be treated equal, but there's no such thing as white racism or white supremacy. And those who say that there is are radicals and they hate America. It's typical Trumpian rhetoric. I tell you what, I will actually post a link to this document on my webpage. And rather than attempting to continue to convince you that, yes, white supremacy and racism are very, very real, and that Trump's continued denial of such is not only incredibly idiotic, but also incredibly dangerous to our entire society, black and white, I will simply ask that if you know of any other books or documents to help white Americans understand structural racism in America, please send me a message. Make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I am HomegrownKC on all of these platforms. You can visit my website for additional information and articles. It's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the show financially, you can do so by subscribing to Patreon.com or RedCircle.com. It's $5 a month. You'll get charged the day that you sign up and then the first of every month afterwards. You will receive access to exclusive interviews with other historians in the city and also a shout-out. Thank you to Mike, Bjorn, and Linda for your support. If you cannot commit to a monthly donation, you can submit a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Thanks goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show. To local libraries, without whom I would not be able to research these episodes. And a very special thank you to my friend Takia and fellow historian Josh for being my readers on these episodes. Be kind to one another. Be safe. Wear a mask and trust science. Thank you for listening. Bye. Seem to get you off my mind